G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks podcast, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined as always by my two lovely co-hosts, Ardeet and Ben along. He's back. He's back. He's back. <laughs> Sound the trumpets. He's here today. And of course, today is Thursday, the 11th of May. And this week's topic is the 2023 federal budget. Then, of course, we'll jump into this week in Australian history. This week with Ben along. And then we'll finish off, as always, with the 4X bottle top question. But before we get into all of that, my voice is horrendously husky. There's not much I can do about it, so I do apologize, dear listener. We have had a cold snap in Queensland, and it has done a number on my voice. How are you two? Ben along, where have you been? Where have I been? Um, well, I've been flat out starting up a new business and also studying my MBA, but I've got it all under control now. So... Um, yeah, so I'm back. Whether you like it or not, you're back. Hmm. <laughs> How about yourself, Ardeet? What's yeah, what, new this week? What's new this week is I've been uh, I've been moving dirt. I had uh, we've been building a couple new garden beds, and we also wanted to create some mounds for some. Uh, Alocasiorina littoralis down the driveway, which is a, a black she-oak, Australian native, and got in uh, 20 metres of uh, dirt. And I hired a, an excavator, did most of the moving, but uh, there was probably still about two metres left on the uh, tarpaulin, so I had to... That was one of the tasks this week, moving that, and then I've got a whole pile of mulch that I've got to move. So... It's been, it's been a little bit of a week of, uh, of of digging and shifting mounds from one place to another. So that's been my week. What about you, DK? Oh, as I said, it's been very cold here in sunny Queensland at the moment. Uh, <laughs> and I know listeners from southern states, like RD, will laugh at me. Hence uh, me laughing. <laughs> ex- exactly. I. It was... the. Uh, I think it was the day before yesterday I woke up at about 6 o'clock and it was <laughs> 5 degrees Celsius and I rolled over and I, my wife grumbled at me and I said, it's too bloody cold, I'm going back to bed. And it's it's been quite nice during the day, it's sort of warmed up, but we're still talking like mid-20s, it's not that warm. Uh, so I've got my Uggs on, I've got my, my jumper on right now, I've got a, a dark beer, a nice winter beer to warm me up and soothe my throat. So I'm I'm coping with the cold, but apparently this cold snap is going to be leaving us reasonably soon because it does get that cold here, but not, you know, as we joke and say, we, we get sort of, you know, two weeks of winter, uh, if that. Um, so it's it's been unseasonably cold and we certainly weren't prepared for it to happen so quickly. It just sort of came out of nowhere. Um, and I've lost my voice, apparently. Um, <laughs> I'm not really sure. I woke up and it just never came back. So, uh, 
we'll we'll brute force our way through today, and hopefully it doesn't sound too bad in the uh, in the playback. So again, my dear oh, listeners, not, not, sound, not sounding too bad to to me. Yeah, right, I, I will throw a little bit of sympathy your way. Yeah, same here. So when you, oh, you when go. you said the temperature that it got down to, I do understand those those sudden chips, but. I have to admit, I'm always amused by a chilly Queenslander. So. <laughs> yeah, well, because we're our, you know we're we're a bit sooky when it when it comes to <laughs> when it comes to the uh, the cold, and rightfully so. I mean, you know, the week before it was like 31 degrees, and now we're down to to, to five. So yeah, it you know, uh, fair it, enough. Yeah, give me cut me some slack, basically. So, yeah, yeah, um, fair enough. speaking of slack being cut, <laughs> the the federal budget for 2023 has been handed down this last Tuesday, which is why, of course, we're recording on a Thursday. And I suspect that your understanding of economic theory, the state of the economy, and of course, your personal financial position is going to make your opinion up on this budget, uh, love it or hate it, it's what I would call a reasonably boring, fairly sensible budget, uh, but I know it's got a lot of people up in arms. Uh, obviously, we don't have time to go through 100% of the budget itself uh, because, quite frankly, that would take all night, and I don't think it would listen uh, sound particularly uh, pleasant, and it would probably get a bit stale, but we are going to go through some of the highlights of the big ticket items, the surprises that were included, and of course, the absent items. So, there's a bunch of really boring little things that do affect everyday people, but I thought we'd really smash through these quickly because there's not really much to talk about here. Uh, but something that you might want to be aware of, uh, like that there's going to be an increase of $10 to the passenger movement charge from the 1st of July next year. So if you are going overseas and you want to save $10, you need to go before the 1st of July. Otherwise, everyone's going to cop an additional fee of $10. Of course, it'll be built into the ticket, but um, Ukraine's getting another $200 million in aid over the next two years, which is interesting. The funding, of course, is going to go to... Sorry, say, that fig- say that figure again. From the- $200 million in aid over the, last, over the next two years. Oh, in aid. My apologies. <clears throat> yeah. I thought you had said that that 10 bucks departure thing was raising $200 million. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. Okay. No, yeah. my, my Still, mistake. Sorry, 10 bucks. On. Moving on. <laughs> yep. Ukraine is also getting $200 million in aid over the next two years. Uh, the funding is going to go towards additional Bushmasters, uh, drones, uh, artillery ammunition, and training for Ukrainian soldiers. So while that $200 million sounds like a lot of money to go overseas, it's actually being spent in Australia. So um, don't, you know, I think, I think there's a lot of people going to try and spin this. Um, but just be aware that that money's actually being spent in Australia and is going to Australian companies, to Australian people, all that stuff. So, um, but we'll come back to defence in a general sense a little bit later on. Um, there's $3.4 billion that's going to be spent over the next 10 years on the 2032 Brisbane Olympic Games. So... 
for those unaware or that have forgotten, of course, Brisbane or I should say the southeast Queensland because it's not really – it's focused in Brisbane, but it's not specifically just in Brisbane. Um, the Olympic Games is going to be held in 2032 and the federal government and, of course, the Queensland government, it needs to start building some new facilities, some new infrastructure around there. So that's starting in this budget. It's amazing how much money has to be spent on these things that are profitable. Yeah, and that's why, um, you know, we'll probably go into this in a lot more detail as the Olympics come closer and um, all of that kind of stuff. But I think it's quite sensible what the proposal by the Queensland government was for this Olympic Games because it's not... As much as they're calling it the Brisbane Olympics, it's really Southeast Queensland Olympics. Like it's very spread out and it's not focused on one one city as much as it's focused on the region. And that's good for a number of reasons because it sort of spreads out a lot of the infrastructure. Just like when the Gold Coast hosted the Commonwealth Games, a lot of that infrastructure needed to be built anyway. So you can kind of leverage oh, we're going to spend this money on some of this infrastructure anyway. Let's host the games and get the tourist dollars and blah. So let's not dwell on that too much because we've got a lot to go through. But it is interesting that we, we're starting to think about that, of course, now, even though that is in, you know, significantly far away. Uh, ASIS, not ISIS, ASIS, which is the Australian Secret Intelligence Service, is getting a huge funding boost. Uh, it's going to receive $470 million over the next four years to quote-unquote modernize the agency. What that specifically means, we don't necessarily know. It's classified. Uh, need to know basis only, and they will kill you if you ask too many questions. <laughs> Moving oh, on. Thank, thank God. I was, I was Before this budget, I thought... There's just not enough surveillance of Australian citizens. I hope they throw a, throw a few bucks their way. <laughs> yeah, a few to the federal. The federal government, government has. Yeah. yeah. Now look, the this, this one's actually quite interesting. So the federal government has promised to establish a national messaging system to deliver instant emergency warnings to all mobile devices in a geographic area. The messaging service will be operational by the end of next year and it will replace the voice-only communication system used by police, paramedics and firefighters so that all states and territories are using the same system and, and can communicate across borders, as well as being able to very easily and quickly share videos and locational information with each other. It blows my mind that this is in 2023. This isn't something that we have already, but I think it's a case of, you know, uh, a lot of grandfathered in technology, a lot of mismatching and we just need to start again and standardize the system which is basically what they're doing so i think that will be good this is going to be one of those things that is useful in the background but not everyday people are really going to see it um but of course the national messaging system itself being able to text a group an area in a, in a specific area is going to be quite useful for like disaster management and things like that hmm. um so Cost of living's out of control at the moment. Uh, oh. I think 
<laughs> this is a bit of an understatement. I think everyone listening and, of course, everyone present uh, can can personally see this effect. Uh, so, But the cost of living measures in this budget are very subdued. And I think that's for a good reason, which we'll get into in a minute. Um, there's going to be a five uh, up to five hundred dollars in energy bill relief to be paid out to pensioners, veterans, concession card holders, and people on government support payments. It's estimated this is going to affect five million households. So how this works is. The money is going to be given to the states and territories who are basically going to pass it on through the um, electricity providers. Different states and territories are giving different amounts of money. So I believe at this point in time, and again, this is subject to change, but I believe in Western Australia, it's only $350 in a rebate and the Northern Territory is the same. Um, and sorry, so is the ACT. But New South Wales, Queensland, Victoria, Tasmania, um, it's up to $500 that they'll... Cre- I, I imagine they're just going to credit the bill. Uh, and, of course, then you just don't have to pay it. Um, yeah, that's correct. There's also going to be a funding fun, funding of $1.3 billion, uh to offer low-interest loans for homeowners their homes more efficient. So I'm thinking this is, you know, some substantial renovations. As long as the outcome is that your home is more efficient, the government basically will will offer you a, a low interest loan to do so. We don't know too much about the specifics of this program yet, but I'm sure as more comes out about that, we'll probably talk about it later in the podcast at some point. Um there's also going to be $650 to small businesses um, for their power bills. So, for, sorry, $650 credit to their power bills. I don't know the criteria of that if it's all small businesses or if there's a specific criteria. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. Um, I haven't seen the specifics on that, so I can't, I can't speak to that. So, yeah. Job seeker, Oz study, and youth allowance rates will be permanently increased for all recipients by $40 a fortnight or $20 a week. Uh, of course, this is good for those on those government benefits, uh, but it's been argued by the Greens Party and others that it's not enough. Uh Rent assistance is also being increased by $15 a week. And quite frankly, the Greens are livid that uh, it's such a small amount of money and they've said that it's not going to make any difference uh, for those that are already on rental assistance. And I can't agree. $15 a week is is nothing, especially when you consider a lot of rents are going up. You know, in some cases, they're doubling, things like that. Uh, $15 a week is is almost insulting. I think they almost would have been better just not to do anything. Um, mm. But the main reason, if we're honest, that it's not more um, and, the, and, and the reason that I've said that this is a reasonably responsible and sensible budget uh, is the elephant in the room, which is, of course, 
inflation. Mm. So this Labor government are trying to limit inflationary pressures by purposely limiting the benefit increases to everybody. They're happy to give you up to $500 on a power bill because that will genuinely impact your cost of living, but it's not inflationary. They're not giving you cash. They're giving you a credit on a utility that you're going to have to use regardless. Um, of course, the increase of $20 a week to uh, job seeker, or study and youth allowance is technically inflationary, but it is quite small. So I don't know that it's really going to have a big impact. But there are some economists that are saying that this actually was a mistake and that they shouldn't have increased it at all. I am sort of on the fence. I, I actually think they probably should have increased rent assistance and not increased these allowances because rent assistance just goes straight to your rental bill as opposed to actually giving you more cash. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, this budget is forecasting a $4 billion surplus, which if it eventuates would be the first surplus since the 2007-2008 budget. Um, Of course, Labor's going to take credit for this, but it's not really Labor's brilliant economic planning. It's more a byproduct of the inflation crisis that we're having at the moment. Um, And to be fair, like very cleverly, Labor is using this surplus to pull money out of the economy, they've set up to 85% of it will basically just go to the bottom line um, to help bring down inflationary pressures. But on, you know, long term, the next budget may still have a small surplus, um, but I think it's unlikely after that to really have another surplus, if, if I'm quite honest. Yeah, that was that was my reading. Yeah. It was interesting today that Peter. So Dutton, there's been a. I was just going to say it was interesting today that Peter Dutton came out and um, he said the LNP should take credit for the surplus and not Labor um, because it was all measures that were put in place before Labor became the government. But um, by the same token, the inflation, the interest rates, the um, cost of living, the cost of food. Um, high electricity prices were all things that were put into place before Labor came to government too. So he wants to blame Labor for the bad things and take credit for the good things. Sorry, hang, hang on. Just just let me clarify that, Ben Along. You're saying that a politician in opposition is claiming credit for everything good and blaming the people in power who beat him for everything I know it's Did shocking. Is that it? correctly? <laughs> it's absolutely I'm shocking. <laughs> it's uh, you know, of course, obviously, I did joking. Um, but yeah. you, am I? <laughs> yes, of course I am. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for our listeners, they can't detect sarcasm. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, they probably would. But but, and they have. It, it is an interesting. I mean, you're exactly right. the 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 previous Liberal government is the reason for these inflationary pressures that we're seeing, and for the inflation overall, which is why the budget now is in surplus. Um, so they can take credit for that. 
But if they're going to take credit for that, <laughs> they have to take credit for the rest, which is or the cost of living or- crisis. Exactly, which they're not going to do. Of course, of course they're not. Um, it's all about optics, as we know. And unfortunately, uh, like genuinely, I think, and we'll obviously we'll continue into the budget in a minute, but I think so far what we've seen in the budget, I think a lot of people, you know, there's a lot of people that are struggling right now with the cost of living crisis. And I thought, I think a lot of people have become used to when the budget comes down to see money go into their bank account. You know, over the last few years, we've seen quite a lot of, uh, we've seen successive budgets where they basically throw money at people. Um, it's not a lot of money. You know, it's it's 250 bucks there, 250 bucks here. But obviously, that is part of the reason that we have inflation right now is government yeah. spending, government overspending, government money printing. Um, and record profits and blah, 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 blah. I mean, we won't go into the the specifics of, you know, because I could talk about this all night. But if if the liberal government or, or the liberal leader wants to stand up, stomp his feet and say, we did this, it's like, okay, we'll give you credit, but you can take credit for everything else that you've done as well. Yeah, not going to happen. Yep. I think that's fair turnaround. Yeah. yeah. And and, to, and again, you know, in saying that, I think it's fair to give credit to Labor for being what I think is reasonably sensible with this budget. They're taking advantage of the problem they have, and it's not going to win them political favours right now, at least. Pe- people are upset about this, um, but it's the right thing to do, and I think that should be commended as well. Yeah, I thought it was a pretty fair budget overall. Yeah, look, I think it's got some... Yeah, I I I te- tend to agree with you. I don't agree with you on that, Ben. Along overall, it's uh, it's reasonable optics. It's a reasonable budget. Well, well, let's keep going, and then we'll tell we'll, at the end. You can tell me if you like everything that I've got to say. <laughs> so, um, so uh, the cutoff, and this is a this is a pretty big one. Uh, the cutoff for the single parenting payment is going to be lifted from eight years old to 14, uh, mostly reversing a cut that was made under the, well, it was actually the Howard government and then the Gillard government implemented it um, more than more than a decade ago. Uh, previously, single parents were required to apply for job seeker once their youngest child, the youngest dependent child reached age eight years of age, the change will mean those parents will receive an additional $176.90 a fortnight on the base rate, amounting to $922.10 per fortnight in total. I've heard a lot of people uh, that I've sort of talked to since say, oh, single parent payments, like a huge amount of money and that kind of stuff. Just to be clear, the maximum you can receive single parent payment is $922.10 per fortnight. It's not actually that much money. Um, yeah, don't get me wrong. If you're on minimum wage, you know, obviously working, and you turn around and look at this person that's getting $922 a fortnight for doing nothing, it sounds like a lot of money. But the reality is, you know, children, <laughs> as someone that has three children, children, children are really expensive. So... Nine hundred twenty. You're not running 10. out and blow and um and spending on hookers and blow and wasting Eggs. the rest, are you? 
Exactly. No one's getting rich off the welfare system. It's just not happening. Um, this will this this will benefit about 50, 57,000 parents who, of course, are overwhelmingly women. And it's going to cost $1.9 billion over four years. So we're not really talking, we're talking, you know, a, a reasonable amount of people, 57,000 people that are going to be affected by this. Uh, vulnerable women, we should say, you know, a lot of, a lot of single, single women, uh, not necessarily in the best place financially. So I think, you know, for, for the cost of $1.9 billion, which for this budget is really a drop in the bucket, um, over the next four years, mind you, really isn't a lot. And I think that's a good thing overall. Uh, defense. So defense spending is was already set to rise, but the federal government has added another 11 billion more to the defense spending over the next four years as Australia's military undergoes its largest posture shift in decades. A recent review of Australia's defence strategy ahead of the federal budget warned that the nation had entered, quote-unquote, the missile age, and its military approach was no longer fit for purpose. The funding will be used to rapidly acquire long-range missiles, upgrade bases and ports in Australia's north, and to expand the workforce, among other projects. The federal government will also spend $4.5 billion over the next decade and about half a billion each year ongoing to establish the AUKUS nuclear-powered submarine program, which we've already talked about. Mm. If you would like more information, listen to our podcast from a couple of, couple of weeks ago. $7.8 billion for existing projects will also be scrapped, downsized, or delayed to help pay for the reshaping of the defence budget including dumping plans to acquire hundreds of armoured troop transports, much to the Army's disappointment. And I can say I'm not surprised that this happened. Uh, overall, the Treasury has forecast defence spending to grow by $30 billion more in the next decade than it had previously expected. We've spoken about this in length, so I don't think we really need to go into this too much more. We may revisit the defense budget as the defense review um, over the next couple of weeks. Listeners that are interested, if you would like us to go into this into more detail, I could talk about this for hours, so I'm more than happy to talk about it. But um, I feel like we've sort of spoken enough about this, so let's move on. Mm. The Department of Veteran Affairs is also having a, a, a small funding boost of $328 million, uh, but it's over the next four years as well. Four. These investments are basically to support the government's response to the interim recommendations from the Royal Commission into defence and veteran suicide. So nothing too much of a surprise there, but it is good to see the government back up what the recommendations have, have said. The... Biggest change, and probably the one that's going to affect the most listeners to this, is the Medicare changes. So, we spoke about this last week, that big changes are happening to Medicare, and I don't want to rehash the changes that we did speak about, but the government is tripling, and, and this is something I didn't foresee coming either. 
The government is going to triple the incentive paid to doctors who bulk bill certain patients. The change will benefit eligible people aged under 16, pensioners and Commonwealth concession card holders. It's going to work by offering more financial incentives to GPs who will bulk bill patients to make their consultations free to them. Uh, Treasurer Jim Chalmers estimated it's going to benefit around 11 million people, including 5 million children, which is huge. So my understanding of how this works is the, the bulk billing amount that they receive when they bill people under 16 pensioners and concession card holders will be tripled. So instead of as as it you know as we discussed last week instead of them getting bulk billed and then charging you a fee the idea is that when they bulk bill someone with a concession card or children or pensioners they'll get a triple benefit so i think this is huge so and a, i think it's going to make triple, a big difference just cl- clarify that for me um that'll that's a triple benefit of the base amount that we discussed they were being paid last week because triples a lot yes so it's more in line with um what they would be charging say like a private healthcare patient or basically the gap that you're paying so i believe uh i'm trying to look back now but i think i think from off memory i think the medicare benefit was 30 Oh, 30, 37, 80 or something like that. It, it was something that it was, it was, it was certainly roughly in my head, it was roughly around the $40 mark. But yeah. you're saying they'll be they'll get around about triple. the 120 mark. Yeah, they'll get triple, triple amount now. So wow. it, it's actually a benefit for them to pay, to, to charge, basically to bulk bill. They'll get paid more money to bulk bill um, than they well, would. To, to, to bulk bill. These not ev- certain not everyone, just yeah, just yeah. Uh, just children and concession card holders. Yes, which, as he explained, is po- potentially uh, eleven million people, which is you know a population of twenty twenty six million. I think it is. Uh, it, it's a vast majority. You know, it's it's not a majority, but you know what I mean. It's a good yeah, chunk a of way. yeah. So I just looked it up. It's thirty nine seventy five is what they currently get from Medicare. So there's there's a direct incentive for them now, um, because as we know, a lot of them were charging, you know, sort of the maximum amount that we saw was sort of fifty dollars. Um, but of course, now they're going to get yeah, roughly a, a hundred and twenty dollars from Medicare um, to bulk bill these patients, which is awesome. Oh. And sort of going back to what we talked about last week, this is going to take a lot of pressure, I think, off the hospitals. So, you know, it's quite smart from them, really, because it's it's probably going to end up actually being cheaper long term. Um, because, of course, hospital care is a lot more expensive than GP care. And as we know, a lot of people will go in a hospital, presenting to hospital with minor things that should have been sorted out by the GP, but they can't afford to go to their GP. So, I, 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 I know we'll get into a few things with the budget as we go on, but I'm interested to see how many times uh, general practitioners and medical pop up in pop up in this uh, distribution of of money. I 
tend to agree with you that I can see the advantages in providing that incentive, but there is also a lot of money being thrown that way, and it makes me interested in just how powerful is the lobbying ability of the uh, medical association, because it seems to be a lot of money pushed their way. Yeah. So, and and this is really interesting as well. There is going to be three hundred and fifty-eight million dollars over the next five years to establish fifty-eight Medicare emergency care clinics. So, hmm. I think the prime minister was listening last week when I suggested this. Um, well, we know that Anthony Albanese does listen. He is to this podcast. He is a listener, and he, he obviously was listening. Took my advice uh, because they're basically building uh, these. Uh, they're basically what I described last week. But to rehash was a, a sort of walk-in emergency care clinic that is completely bulk build and is accessible for everybody. And no, no um, bookings necessarily required, and it's it's for those uh, emergency medical, but not that does not require hospital care. You know, you're mm. sick with the flu, or, or you know, you've you've got something wrong, um, and you need to see someone reasonably quickly, but it doesn't need to be, uh, you know, non life threatening type. You know, minor injuries, that sort of stuff. So, um, you know, you know, like uh, basic, uh, you know, you, you've broken your wrist or something like that. You, instead of going to the hospital, you can go to this sort of facility and they can patch you up and fix you up and send you on out. It's all about getting people out of hospital waiting rooms and into a more appropriate, more minor care type facility. So they're going to build, I think it's yeah, 58 of these urgent uh, care clinics is what they're calling them. Uh, and I don't know exactly where they're going to be. I think there's some in every state and territory. Um, but I, I, all of this is wait and see. And I'm sure we'll probably talk about this in more detail. Again, once more detail comes out about it and all that sort of yeah. stuff. So. Um, but it's glad, uh, Prime Minister Albanese. I'm glad that you are took took my suggestion on board. One of our most valued listeners. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> the, of course, one of the biggest savings in this budget also comes from reining in the NDIS, so uh, the National Disability Insurance Scheme. $74 billion to be exact. That's that's a huge number. Um, oh, it is, and I specifically had a note down about that, so yeah. it. Uh, the Treasurer didn't really talk about it much on Tuesday night if you were watching the broadcast uh, because obviously any amount of funding reduction in the NDIS is definitely going to cause anxiety uh, and a little bit of panic to millions of Aussies that do rely on the funding of the NDIS. But it's because it's actually not a funding cut. 
It's a growth cut, and I think that's quite important to distinguish the difference. The the biggest chunk of the fifty eight, sorry, the the seventy four billion comes through the new target to limit the NDIS spending growth to eight percent. Uh, from 2026, down from the current annual growth rate of 13.8%. Uh, 13.8% growth per annum of any program is huge. Uh, and even an 8% annual growth, it wouldn't surprise me if in the future that 8% sort of comes down a little bit as well, um, because that that 13.8% is completely unsustainable long-term. Um, obviously, this budget uh, is for now, so it doesn't just kick in from 2026. It, it actually is going to start kicking in from July. So instead of the scheme growing by another $17 billion over the next four years, as as currently well, previously forecast, um, Due to "quote unquote" improved administration, mm. it will now "quote unquote" reduce additional growth in scheme expenses by fifteen point three billion dollars. This is according to the NDIS Minister Bill Shorten, um, and he said it's all about improving the participant experience and not cutting back on the benefits. This, yeah, that's an interesting phrasing, isn't it? This is yet to be seen. If you can tell me that there is a government program that you can cut back <laughs> by $15.3 billion and it not affect it in any major way, remembering remembering that the single parenting payment increase is only going to cost less than $2 billion over four years, and that directly affects 57,000 parents, you're telling me that you can cut $15.3 billion and it's not going to change anything? It's actually going to improve things? I don't know. Call me sceptical. Can I jump no, in I, there? To, it's, yeah, jump in better along. Okay. So the person they have in charge of cutting the expenditure is a chap called Jason Ryman. And Jason Ryman, as you may recall, for those that into this sort of thing, he was the same bloke that designed the robo-debt. Oh. Uh, the last government... <laughs> oh, no. no. Oh, no. The last government seconded him, Linda Reynolds, I believe, was a, um, she was a minister, I think, uh, seconded him from, um, once robo-debt took off, seconded him from social services into NDIS. And his scheme was to claw back overpayments that have been made to NDIS recipients. So that's a large part of it. He's the bloke that's supposed to mastermind all this cuts to NDIS, which worries me a little. Mm. Carry on now. Yeah, I think it's very. I think it's that's a. I think it's very worrying. You know, a leopard doesn't tend to change its spots. Who who knows? Let's. If we look at it from the positive side, it could be a paradigm shift for the NDIS that may actually provide people with uh, a better service. But I must admit I'm overwhelmed with 
an almost unanimous level of scepticism from the three of us on this uh, projected cuts. Yeah, I see. Yeah, my son. Try to get money back from what they've already paid. Same with Robinette, especially with this uh, Jason Robin character. He's not one of my. Well, put it this way: he's not on my Christmas card list. I, yeah, this one concerns me a little bit about the NDIS because my son, he is autistic and he, his, his benefits and funding, uh, is, is funded through the NDIS. Mind you, it's not, it's not a lot of money or anything like that. So I like, there's no fat to trim in his case really, but I do know other people, uh, other parents, uh, that receive significantly higher benefits than us. Uh, for children that are in a similar situation and things like that. So I, I do think there is a bit of fat to trim out of the program. I don't necessarily know that that's, you know, probably the the right thing to do long term. Um, but, you know, I'm sure we're probably going to talk about this again. As I love to say, watch this space. We'll probably <laughs> come back because as this changes, the NDIS is huge not just from a funding point of view, but from an actual everyday Australian helping people point of view as well. And I think any any major change to the NDIS is going to affect a lot of people. And I'd hope that Bill Shorten is smart enough not to, excuse my French, shit the bed on this, but... Yeah. I don't know. It's Bill Shorten, so maybe. <laughs> how are they? How are they to do to deal with? I mean, you you, you said your oldest son's autistic, so you're having to deal with the NDIS, and you said you know it's not not a huge amount, but you're obviously having to work with them. What's your yeah. experience been of them? It's it's a bureaucratic nightmare. We oh. have to have a basically to. to to sort out, so, so he gets funding for things like um, he regularly, see, regularly sees like a therapist, uh, a, 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 like a, a occupational therapist. He sees uh, a speech therapist. Um, he also sees like psychologists and, and things like that. So 99% of the funding basically just goes to these these people, um, which is good. He gets a lot out of the, the different therapies that he has. Yeah. And there's a huge value to him personally for his personal development, for his academic development. Um, and of course, these are people that live in our local community and stuff like that. So it's good that, you know, the funding's going to, to support these local businesses as well. Um, we have to have a, like a case manager that then requests money from the NDIS itself and things like that. And I, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I believe it's, there's so much red tape that we basically couldn't deal with this ourselves directly with the NDIS. I don't know so, how sorry, who, much. Who, who provides that case manager? We, there's lots of them out there. There are a lot of small businesses that do this sort of stuff. There's like a whole industry now case management for NDIS stuff. I actually don't know how much uh, he's paid because we don't see it. It's charged to the NDIS and it comes off my son's quote-unquote plan funding, but I actually have no idea how much that is. My, my wife normally deals with this sort of stuff, so she probably knows, but um, I would imagine he doesn't. He's probably not that cheap 
But again, it's not like it's money out of our pocket. So I, I feel like that's the sort of area where a lot of the fat could be trimmed. I think there's a few companies that are making a fair bit of money off the NDIS and not necessarily providing a huge service to their clients, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I agree. So, so he's he's in, he's essentially independent of the. Sorry, Ben, I talked over you there. He's essentially independent of the government. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, yeah. He works for a company and then deals with the NDIS. So, yeah, that's one of the things I've been campaigning for, like these plan managers or case managers, um, getting all this money, um, and then they've got to pass it back to the NDIS who pass it back to the NDIA, um, which is the National Disability Insurance Authority. So you have all these different organisations that are, have got to approve the, the funding, have got to approve the expenditure of the funding, when the NDIS should be just doing it on their own. Uh, we don't need an NDIA, just have the NDIS. You know, one organisation, they look after the expenditure, you don't need these plan managers and case managers. That's the way I look at it. Hmm. Yeah, there's like I said, I feel like there's a lot of fat. There's a lot of bureaucratic red tape. Which don't get me wrong, that can you know that can be good um, to to stop abuse and stuff like that. But I think in this case. Um, if they came up with a plan to sort of streamline the system, it wouldn't surprise me if they were going to save that sort of money. And I wonder if that's sort of what they what they're thinking about. But I'm not 100 percent sure at this point in time. Would sound reasonable, yeah. Uh, um, this one's quite interesting. There's two billion dollars being allocated to help accelerate Australia's green hydrogen industry. Uh, and mining magnate Andrew Forrest, also known as Twiggy, uh, is very pleased about this. He's in the process of, of moving into this industry himself and is happy to snap up quite a bit of this funding. Mm. I, I don't know. I'm, I don't know how I feel about this because... You know, everyone's talking about how hydrogen's the future and all this sort of stuff, and I don't know if that's true. I don't know. Yeah, look, I think there's. Uh, I I have a fairly uh, and using it in the the strict definition definition a fairly Catholic view of energy production, heavily skewed towards clean uh, energy. Hydrogen to me sounds like one of those ones in the mix that may well prove dividends. Uh, down my way on the Mornington Peninsula, they're currently trialing, trialing a pilot where they're exporting hydrogen to liquefied hydrogen. I don't pretend to understand the process, but they're piloting exporting liquefied hydrogen to Japan through... I can't remember the Japanese Japanese company uh, Komatsu, and in partnership with somebody else. So that is being exported to Japan. It's something that we can produce. I understand that there's different levels of hydrogen, whether it's green or brown, and I think there's another one, uh, depending on how clean the original source is. I also noticed that Toyota recently have just produced a an 
a car with an engine that's just running on uh, hydrogen as well. So I think it's in the mix. I think it's part of the experiment of moving moving forward with clean energy. I'd like to see where it goes. Uh, I think it's one of those things that's a little bit hard to understand and it's got a couple of ties to fossil fuel, which makes it a little bit difficult to, to touch. But if people are actually serious about uh, climate change and addressing it, it's another clean energy that, in my opinion, needs to be considered. Yeah, I'd agree with you on that one, RD. So I much prefer you know, the hydrogen than um, coal or oil. Mm. Mm. Yep. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I actually hadn't really considered uh, the fact of, of producing it here and exporting it. That wasn't something I really thought about at all, actually. Now that you, you've, you look, you've completely changed my mind about this, actually. Um, $2 billion obviously isn't a huge amount of money realistically, but we're only talking about uh, Twiggy's company and I think, BP is the only other company in this space in Australia right now. So, you know, hopefully this might open up uh, funding for some of the smaller companies that are probably on the periphery that are maybe been dipping their toes in but don't want to overcapitalize and things like that. And this this could be the start of a whole new industry in Australia, which long-term is obviously good. You're right, um, Toyota has produced. It's actually a number of hydrogen cars. I think I think one of them's gone into full-scale production now. So the Japanese really feel like, or at least Toyota, feels like hydrogen is, is definitely a future... Um, not just electric cars, but hydrogen instead. Of course, there's there's huge benefits to hydrogen over an electric car. You can fill them up really quickly. Yep. Uh, just like a regular, you know, petrol or diesel car now. Yep. They fill up really, really quickly. The big downside is the tanks in the vehicle are quite large. So you do lose quite a bit of your boot space um, as opposed to, say, electric cars, which you end up having more space. Hydrogen takes the the tanks themselves take up quite a bit of space, but that's not to say that they're um, it's not a, a very interesting future for an alternative uh, combustion engine. That and of course the byproduct of a hydrogen car is water, which yep. is kind of cool. So um, I just think it's interesting. It's just it sort of caught me off guard, I guess, uh, on Tuesday night. I just it wasn't something that was on my horizon for Australia. I didn't realize there was much of an industry here. It sounds like there's not, but this may kick it off. And um, I think you're right. It's, it's like we just sort of discussed the other week when we were talking about the small modular reactors. This can be part of the the broader picture. You know, we don't need it. Like I said, we don't need a silver bullet. But if we've got a bit of everything, it all adds up to 100%, you know. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. Look, I think hydrogen needs a bit of uh, better PR, but uh, you know, Australia is blessed with the resources to, pr- to be able to produce all levels of hydrogen. My understanding is uh, essentially you can have one of those ones where you throw a whole lot of electricity at it, you break mm. down water and you get your hydrogen. You can throw a whole lot of process, processing at it and break down fossil fuels and get your hydrogen. 
uh, and depending whether it's green or, or, or brown. But the bottom line is Australia, once again, is in a position where we can produce a massive amount of energy for the, the world. It's just whether or not we have the, the vision in the government of whatever colour to actually move forward with, you know, a generational changing dream. I think that's a really good way of putting it. Do we have the the guts and the imagination to seize the opportunity yes. that's in front of us? That's a good way of putting it, actually. I believe the funding that's available is only for green hydrogen, so this doesn't come from fossil fuels. This is where they pull it out of uh, basically water, I believe, mm. uh, where they're splitting water. It uses a huge amount of energy, but again, we have huge solar farms and things like that and wind power and stuff. So it can be it can be produced with renewable energy. Um, so I think that's more what this is focused on. And of course, a byproduct of this may be investments into bigger uh, energy infrastructure around renewables, or even, or even maybe the uh, the small nuclear, uh, the small modular reactor might oh. come into play in this industry as well. So you know, again, watch this space. We watch may see. Yep. We, I'm sure we're probably not going to. Well, I, I hope we don't hear. Uh, we hear more more about this in the future because this is one of those exciting. Um, Exciting little things that, yeah, may become something really, really big. We'll see. Uh, of course, not everyone was a winner in the federal budget, and smokers and vapors aren't going to be happy. Hmm. No. If you, <laughs> if you smoke tobacco, the tobacco excise is going to be lifted by another 5% for the next three years. The health minister, Mark Butler, said that the increase had started to lag behind inflation uh, and he did not want to see the price of cigarettes become... Oh, why are you kidding? <laughs> he didn't want to see them become, quote-unquote, more attractive. The excise on a packet of cigarettes, a pack of 20, is currently $23.29. So I haven't bought cigarettes in a very long time and I probably paid, the last packet of cigarettes I probably bought was about $23. <laughs> so uh, if that's anything to go on, a packet of cigarettes must be close to $60 these days. That's uh, phenomenally expensive. I'm exactly, you, you, might be, you might be jumping in straight after me on this, Ben Long. <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm, I'm from the mindset of the uh, join the club, join the club, join the escort, escort club, 64 cents, and you're a winner. Yeah, 64 cents for a packet of, uh, of 20. I haven't I haven't smoked now for a, a couple of years, but the last time that I uh, bought a packet of a packet of twenty five, like I was just astounded at how much it was going up, and in my opinion, how much smokers were being shafted. And I understand all the health arguments and all that other thing. Fair enough, good enough. But uh, for a legal product, I was surprised how much smokers were being shafted. And I thought I'll grab this uh, last one from the, the well, the well, it was my last one because I grabbed it from the supermarket, 
and it was a pack of 25 and it was almost bloody 50 bucks and I thought that's two bucks a dart and they changed something in the formulation that made them less and less attractive and there was a whole series of events that led to me saying no that was that was the end of it but to have them come out and say it's not keeping pace with inflation when it has just been scooted up to ridiculous levels i mean yeah. look oh, i think it's good i'm glad i'm not smoking however the what i think is extortion by the government and essentially milking addicts for the budget I find it very difficult to agree with. What, what were you going to say, Ben, along? Well, where you've got to understand, the excise on cigarettes actually originally came in. Um, they said, we will use the money from the excise for medical research into tobacco-related illnesses <laughs> when it first came in. And about three years later, they said, let's just put it into general revenue and knock it up a bit more and a bit more and a bit more and a bit more. I wouldn't mind the excise if it was actually going back into medical research, but it's not. It's going into general revenue. Um, that, that general revenue doesn't go back into medical research very often. So that's no, my bitch about it. Um, I go smoking about 15 months ago. Um, oh, congratulations. Good on you. Uh, you know, I mean, a man of my calibre, you know, it's not that difficult. But anyway. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so the original idea of what the excise was, the same on um, alcohol, the excise was originally brought in um, to go into medical research for alcoholism and alcohol-related illnesses. But, again, that goes into general revenue. So every time they want to increase revenue, they come up with some reason to always hit um, the drinker, the smoker, or the motorist. Okay, they put more excises on petrol, alcohol, or tobacco. The same excises don't apply necessarily to wine, to cigars, or to diesel. So the richer people. No, are, cigars are touched by the tobacco excise. Not to because. The no, yeah, you're right because there's more tobacco in a cigar, but um, they are prohibitively expensive these days. I know this because I enjoy a cigar every couple of months, and it's oh, becoming do you? yeah, I, I do. Um, it's one of my guilty pleasures, uh, and it is phenomenally expensive, uh, especially on my birthday. Every okay, every birthday I go and buy a, a big old thick. Cuban cigar, uh, a tomahawk steak, which for, uh, for those that don't know, yeah. it's it's like, it's like a. I always get a big one, so it's like one and a half kilos of meat, mm. uh, and a and a bottle of uh, of fine uh, spirits, nor normally rum, sometimes whiskey, uh, oh, and I, yeah. I sit there and I I just gorge myself. Um. It's a great birthday every year. It's fantastic. I'm a bed by six. Uh, I stink. <laughs> and it's, it's, yeah, it's a great day. It's my favorite day of the year. Uh, but this actually, this what, last what, year. What cigar do you get? It's, it's, I don't mind it, cigars, but it's been a little while since I've had one. What, do you, what cigar is your favorite? 
I'm not a big cigar snob. Um, you know, frequent smokers have very cigars are the sort of things. Oh, I guess I guess cigarette smokers are like people get very judgmental about what you smoke <laughs> uh, based on what it is. I have a, a, a personal affinity for King Edward's cigars, but they're very yeah. they're very hard to find. So. You know, the, the local tobacconist doesn't have a particularly large range. Uh, if I'm in Brisbane around my birthday, I'll normally try and go to a specific, uh, the, the you know, somewhere yep. good and get something yeah. nice. But I'm not too fussy. What, whatever's sort of nice. So so, um, so long as it's in that, that reasonable range where you get that uh, rich, rich, rich smoke and you get the, the good draw. And you get that ability to just sit back and relax and just think, ah, oh, that's a good smoke. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. So yep. Um, I should start having two birthdays a year, I think, actually talking about this. <laughs> um, might be my birthday oh. coming up next week. I don't know. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, of course, vapes, uh, disposable vapes, which, of course, vaping has been quite common for people that uh, want to give up smoking. They've started vaping. I know a number of friends that have done that, and I think they, they vape more than they smoked. But uh, disposable vapes are going to be banned outright. Uh, and all I believe all other vapes are going to be heavily regulated and only accessible through pharmacies with a prescription. So that's a huge change. Um I, I believe this is going to have to be an act of parliament that, that actually does this, but this is what the government wants to do. Um, and they're going to spend $234 million over the next four years in an attempt to stop people from vaping, basically. Uh, and that includes $63 million. Get back on those cigarettes. Exactly. Get back on the ciggies. They're better for you. 60, $63 million on a public health campaign, $30 million for support programs, uh, and $140 million to extend the Tackling Indigenous Smoking Program. So, you know, they're sort of spreading the money around a little bit. But I think the biggest loser in the budget, though, is everyone in the form of the heavy vehicle road user charge. It's going to be raised 6% for the next three years from 27.2 cents per litre of diesel to 32.4 cents wow. by 2025. Oh. And, of course, this price is going to be passed on to everything. If you're a consumer, if you buy bread, milk, cheese, cigars, steaks, it <laughs> This is going to affect everybody in every way. Uh, and, and I'm actually kind of surprised because this is inflationary, to be honest. And I'm surprised out of such a sensible budget with, with a key, you know, in mind, they're trying to tackle inflation, bring things back under control. This surprised me that they, that they threw this in. If anything, um, you know, they probably could have wiped this for a year or just left it as it was. Um, they hoo-ha about how this is going to raise, you know, another another couple of billion dollars. But I think, I think this was probably a bad move, ultimately. But oh, I think it's a freaking sh shocking move. And you can imagine the stories about the selfish and greedy truckers coming up in the the future. Maybe we could get uh, who's who's Fidel Castro's son in Kenya? What's his name again? Harry. 
<laughs> yeah, the Prime Minister of uh, of Canada, <laughs> Justin Trudeau. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Fidel Castro's son, uh, <laughs> Justin Trudeau. <laughs> Maybe we could get him over here and tell us how to deal with the recalcitrant truckers. <laughs> with the truckers. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, ultimately, this isn't this isn't about trying to uh, obviously pu- pull the truckers into line. It's it's just about uh, revenue, right? The, well, that's it. It's the revenue. They argue it goes to the idea is that it's charged and it goes to repairing roads that are damaged by heavy trucks. Um, and I don't necessarily believe that i mean the friggin highways at least around here i'm pretty sure all around the country are forever uh being repaired so you know obviously they need a lot of money but yep. it is frustrating it, it, you know can we just go back to the vapes for a minute so this just seems to be like a way that the yeah. industry have got the government to get rid of the competition i mean vapes come in as a disruptor um no incumbent organisation likes a disruptor, especially when it's cheaper and more appealing than what the incumbent already has. So we have a situation where a disposable vape costs around about, I think, $15. It lasts for about as long as three packets of cigarettes. And a packet of cigarettes costs you around about, it's close to $80 for a packet of 40 now. Maybe even ninety dollars on my. Wow, eighty, good lord! Twenty-five percent of the people at the pub that I go to now have changed over to vapes, uh, whether it be nicotine vapes or um, nicotine-free vapes, uh, because it's just simply cheaper and, quite frankly, they smell a lot better. I mean, um, yeah, they don't stink like cigarettes do. Yeah, and. This thing about getting rid of the flavours and that, um, um, <laughs> Labor used this argument, oh, it's for the kids, okay? Um, mm. If they're worried about kids, I mean, regulate it the same as cigarettes, tobacconists, you have to show proof of age, bottle shops, you have to yep. show proof of age, um, vape shops all sell them through the tobacconists. Um, this rubbish about you can still get them through pharmacies with a prescription, only if it's approved by the TGA. There is not one single nicotine product in Australia that is approved by the TGA. So mm. this crap about you can get them through the chemist on prescription, it's nothing that's approved to get through the chemist on prescription. I mean, it's just <laughs> a smokescreen, let's say, by the way. Sorry, that's bad. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's crap. I mean, they're making things up and... People are actually believing it. Oh, it's for the kids. It's to protect the kids. Okay. Um, they made marijuana illegal. More kids use it now because they're not allowed to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anybody that has kids will know that's pretty much the truth. <laughs> I was a kid. I was never really worried about marijuana until my parents told me you're not allowed to smoke it. Well, then I better do it. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, to be honest, uh, the the programs we had around. Yeah, I mean, like, I remember when I was a kid, like, obviously, you know, don't smoke was a big thing. Peer pressure, don't take drugs and all this kind of stuff. But to be fair, like, they, I felt like I was going to get offered drugs 
a lot more in everyday life than I than I currently do. And I'm a little bit disappointed, actually, about that. <laughs> I, remember that I remember my mother warning me when I went to the uh, the, the the movie show. Now, <laughs> this is ridiculous thinking about it. She said, make sure somebody there doesn't just inject you in the middle of the cinema. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever remember hearing that one? Or we get, we still get it. Obviously, I got young children, so this always pops up around Halloween about you should inspect your child's candy because there might be drugs in it. And I'm like, lady, no one's giving away drugs to kids. Like, this is not, this is not happening. Drugs are expensive. You don't just give them away to people you don't know. Like, come on, that's ridiculous. Speaking, speaking of ridiculous things, Ben along, what happened this week in Australian history? This week in Australian history, there's a budget, <coughs> but we've talked about that. So, <laughs> that's <laughs> ridiculous. So, where do we start? What day do you want to start on? Um, Let's, uh, yeah. Um, what was last Thursday? The 4th. Um, yeah. Fourth. The 4th of May. May the 4th be with you. So, Star Wars Day. Um, Star Wars Day. So, on 4th of May, 1826, English-born bushranger Matthew Brady and cannibal Thomas Jeffries were hung at the Campbell Street Jail in Hobart, Van Diemen's Land. So, cannibal. God, even the, even the press was bloody biased back then. Notice how they couldn't just... <laughs> no, he, was, he, was, he was a cannibal. I, remember, I, I vaguely remember the story, and, and I'll probably butcher this, so, so take this with a healthy grain of salt, but I believe uh, he he escaped from uh, like a penal colony or jail or whatever it was uh, with a couple of other inmates, and one of them died. It was him and one other man, and, and the other person died. And he later admitted to... Uh, basically having to consume part of this man's body because he was starving to death and he would have died in the bush if he if he hadn't. And I think he probably shouldn't have admitted that because it came, it came back to bite him later on. And that's why you'll always see references of him called the cannibal because he admitted to eating, uh, you know, p- part of a deceased man to, to stay alive. God, you, eat, you eat you eat one person. <laughs> yeah, you, <laughs> you have one thigh, and now you're a cannibal for life. You know. <laughs> Wasn't there some soccer team did that when their plane crashed a couple of years back? Quite a few years back. It was. That was not a couple of years back. It was like in the eighties, I think. Uh, but yes, well, yeah, well, that, that did happen. Yeah. So I'm sixty-two. Come on, be be nice. You know, it's just a bit of ageism going on here. <laughs> Um, yes, that was. I believe it was a South American team. I think it was in the Andes. They crashed. A bunch of people died in the crash, and of course, the survivors stayed with the wreckage and had to consume the flesh of the deceased to survive themselves. So, I don't think they're called cannibals, though. I don't think you run around going, "Oh, look, it's Jeff the cannibal." Um, <laughs> how times have changed. Jeff is my favourite Wiggle, so I never call him a cannibal. So. Um, In 1942, on the 4th of May, the Battle of the Coral Sea began. lasted for five days. Um, Coral Sea, for those that don't know, is between Australia and the Solomon Islands. Okay. 
And the 4th of May is also Andrew Denton's birthday, born in 1960. <laughs> so, 5th of May. 1865, bush trader Ben Hall was ambushed and shot dead by police near Goobang in New South Wales. <laughs> Poor old Ben. Okay. Mm. Yes, yeah, yeah. so that uh, that goes back to my birthplace in Forbes where bold Ben Hall is buried. That's one of the things in the the cemetery that I always remember when I'm, I'm going there because I've got uh, my brother and a couple of relatives uh buried there in the the forbes cemetery and there's a little sign place uh, sign post saying uh you know bold ben hall's grave so it's it's been something that you know from a, a little little kid it's always yeah how you have those slides in your head we have an image and it's just the bold ben hall grave it always sort of sticks in my head <laughs> Okay. So, yeah, I've got a bit of time for Ben Hall, but anyway, he's dead. So, yeah. Um, ah. <laughs> um, in 1947, on May 5th, 16 people were killed and 38 injured when a crowded picnic train derailed near Camp Mountain in Queensland. And in 1998, four Royal Australian Navy sailors died from carbon dioxide poisoning after a fire of all the HMOs for Australia. So, yeah, we actually we spoke about this last week. There's a bit of an overlap with uh, last week's This Week in History, but that's okay. Oh, there was, so I wasn't yeah. imagining it. I was yeah. just as I was saying that, I thought, ah, I, okay. I thought what we'd you want to jump to? So let's jump to, I think we did the, up to the, I want to say the fifth. That was the Let's fifth kick one. off from the... Was that? Oh, so it must have been the the sixth. We must have finished on. So let's jump to the sixth. What happened on the sixth? Sixth, um, eighteen thirty nine. John Batman, one of the key leaders and one of the key figures in the foundation of Melbourne, died in Melbourne at the age of thirty eight. So he told you Melbourne's not a nice. He was only thirty eight. Yep. Wow. Wow. I didn't realize he was so young. Holy yeah, moly. I I thought, holy moly, Batman. Yeah, holy moly. moly. (laughs) Was was that deliberate, DK? That was was deliberate. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm so glad you both picked that up. Otherwise, I'm not a a five-year-old. I thought Batman was a four. 38. There we go. Good on you, Robin. I reckon old Dick Grayson knocked him off. So, um, And... Singer Grant McLennan, one of the founders of the new rock band Go Between, died of a heart attack in Brisbane and Queensland at the age of 48 on, in 2006 on May 6th. So, they oh. died very young. Yeah. So, all the fame doesn't do them much good. <laughs> I'm glad nobody knows who I am. I'm going to live forever. <laughs> okay, mate. Um, sorry. But I just had to look this up because I was sure I sure I was sure this was a thing and it and it is. But uh especially for international listeners that might be listening, but uh 
John Batman was such a big deal for for the the founding of the city of Melbourne that there is actually a division in what now is sort of like northern Melbourne that's named after him. So every election we have the division of Batman, and I just think that's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> There's a bit of my singing there for it. Um, let's go to May 7th. We'll get through this a bit quicker. Um, May 7th, 1815, 1908. This is, a, this is a good one. I like 1908. Australia's first coat of arms was granted by King Edward VII. So it looked like a cartoon. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. There's, there's the the... Trivia about the coat of arms is I think it's the only coat of arms in the world where both animals depicted can be eaten quite freely, actually. Yeah, and they can't. So oh, I, thought you, a, I thought you were going to say it was the only one where they can't be, uh, they can't move backwards. But uh, do you know yeah. what? That's true. That's true as well. There you go. That's true as well. So for our listeners that can't remember or uh, don't know, uh, it's a kangaroo and an emu on the Australian coat of arms. And Both are delicious. International list- oh, 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 there you go. Both delicious, exactly. Yeah, I like the kangaroo better. Very lean. Let's hop on a little bit from there. So. <laughs> um, May 8th, um, Lachlan Macquarie, not Lachlan Murdoch, Lachlan Macquarie is appointed to replace William Bly as Governor of New South Wales. Um, that was in 1809. And 1972, Darren Hayes, the frontman of pop duo Savage Garden, was born in Brisbane. So we get a lot of Brisbane this week. So Brisbane does a lot of good things. Mm. You, know? you know, not just the Olympics, you know, we've got the best of them. Mm. So... Brisbane, uh, Brisbane's churned out a lot of big Australian music um, yeah, as BG's, well. Brisbane's like really good for that. Yeah, BG's come from. So, you know, so Darren, Darren Hayes drained the uh, national economy economy to the tune of three point two billion as well. Did he? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's a call back to the cost of the Olympic Games. That's right. Ah, yeah. uh, but the Games are going to make a lot more money for small business than the outlay on. <laughs> so everybody laughed at Joe Jockey Peterson back in 1987 when he said we're going to have a World Expo in 1988. It put Brisbane on the map. That's fantastic. Yeah. We we actually spoke yeah. about that, I think, a week ago or two weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, it weeks. was the anniversary of it. And, yep, it did. And it's still uh, a fantastic, you know, what they built, the infrastructure for it is still well used today. So. Yeah, South Bank. Yep, farm peanuts and billions. <laughs> okay, May 9th, um, 1901, the first Parliament of Australia opened at the Royal Exhibition Building in Melbourne. And in 1927, on May 9th, the federal government moved from Canberra, moved to Canberra from Melbourne with the opening of the Provisional Parliament House. Okay, and I think it was well, 1988. That's... that's- that's fun that it was on the same day. Like, that couldn't have been a coincidence. And 1990, the new Parliament House was opened on Capitol Hill by Queen Elizabeth II. God bless Queen Elizabeth. So, so in three different years, we had the new Parliament Houses open in three different cities. 
Oh, two different cities. That's co- well, I mean, that's got to be not a coincidence, I'd imagine. But at least the one in 1988, the new Parliament House, I didn't realise that was opened by the Queen. Uh, she was probably here for Expo 88 in Brisbane. Yes, she did. She opened Expo 88. That could have been the only reason she would have been here. That's the only reason. That's, yeah, Expo 88. Like we said, put Brisbane on the map. Yeah, and Prince Philip wanted to see the Aboriginal Australian Spears at each other. So, which he was. Oh, <laughs> he, he was. He was a shocker, wasn't he? Look, it, it, you know, if you take a, if you strip away the political correctness and just look at it from raw comedic value, he was freaking hilarious. But if you inject the PC, he was a shocker. <laughs> yeah, I kind of liked him for that, though, you know. There's something about it. He's got a charm that, yeah. yeah. And speaking of Aboriginals, on May 9th, 1991, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody was released, so which wasn't very favourable. And, and, and nothing's changed. Um, very little, yeah. Um, May 10th, uh, which was yesterday, um, Prime Minister John Howard announced gun controls in the wake of the Port Arthur Massacre and famously wore a flak jacket, a bulletproof vest. Yes. Um, What a miserable little weasel he was as he stole the private property of Australian citizens. And maybe we'll in a future episode. Oh, I know. I know you don't. I know you don't agree, and a lot of people don't agree. But yes, I can't What's it? Let's stay tuned for another. Shoot out of me. Sorry, say that again. I carried a gun for a living as a prison officer. I had to draw it out twice, and it scared the living shit out of me. So, yeah, that was somebody that trained how to use guns. So you can imagine somebody that's not trained how to use guns is able to get one. So. Just about every law enforcement officer I've worked with is of the same um, mindset. It should not be in the hands of people who are not trained to use them or haven't passed psychological tests to be issued with them. As you say, uh, DK, stay tuned. I, I just insert, that sounds to me like Benelong is advocating for all responsible gun owners to be trained, and I completely agree with that. All responsible gun owners should get get training. Same with military. Get training. If if you own a firearm in Australia, get trained. Learn how to use it. Know what to do. Everyone already does have to for their their things. It sounded to me like Benelong was goose-stepping over all our <laughs> fundamental human rights. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that is true. Uh, to, be a, to be a gun owner in Australia, you do have to have a, a, a basic level of training. Um, what I'm advocating for is more. Get trained. Get trained as much as you want. Get out there. Get shooting. Get trained. Have fun. Be safe. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, and, and you know, uh, work out, yeah, get the training on. for the for perfect self defence on it exactly. But yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm with I'm with both of you on that. Yeah, okay. Um, May eleventh, <laughs> May. 
Uh, May 11th today, 1982, the High Court upholds the Racial Discrimination Racial Discrimination Act 1974 in Kuwata versus Jockey Peterson. So Joe Jockey Peterson tried to say that the Racial Discrimination Act wasn't valid, and the High Court said it was. So I think it was the, uh, the, the balls on someone <laughs> to say that, like to just blatantly come out and be like, nah, it doesn't count. Is phenomenal to me. Uh, but so every just can, can, can one, one of you two, one of you two, give a little bit of information on on the racial discrimination act and what he was, what Biocchi was actually opposed to. Uh, there was some specific section in it about um, land rights or something that it went on to become um, 1988, I think it was, or whatever, um, the Marbo case. So. Um, oh. So he's tried to say that the whole Racial Discrimination Act was invalid because of the land rights that it gave to Queensland Aboriginals, but the High Court, I think it was something along that line. I'm not uh, 100% sure on it. Um, okay, yep. Then in May 11th, on this day in 1989, Rosemary Follett became the first Chief Minister of Australian Capital Territory and the first female leader of any Australian state or territory. So it took to 1989 before Ashila became the leader. Wow. And, and you know, I'm, I'm a little bit disappointed it's not South Australia, actually. As we know, South Australia uh, is the most progressive state or at least has been uh, in, in, in our history. Oh, but- way more progressive than Victoria. Yeah, like miles more, but provided <laughs> they've they've dropped the ball on this one, and this went to to the ACT. So, um, yeah, and Labor, they'll have to make up for it somewhere else, I guess. And Labor was the only political party in the federal politics that had a female leader. Thank you, RD. That's not too. That's not too surprising, though. Um, uh, uh, sorry. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. The only political party in government, sorry. Um, the first female leader of a political party was actually the Australian Democrats. Yeah. Oh. So, and, of course, we have another female, well, I'm pretty sure she's female, in Pauline Hanson. So, <laughs> so we're a political party, which is a force to be reckoned with, whether you like it or not. So, and yep. that brings us up to date on the history. Fantastic. Do you have you been in your hiatus from the podcast? Have you been drinking a lot of forex? I can imagine you have been. I've been studying MBA. Of course, I have been. So the only way. <laughs> do you do you have a bottle cap handy for us? I do. So during the first and second world wars, what was the old nickname for forex? Think of Ooh. on the bottles. So, what does it look like? And think of war. Wow, oh God, that's a, that's it was a, called, it, it was called barbed barb wire. Hey, that's a good. Yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah, because oh, forex wow. writing looks like barbed wire in the soldiers. Yeah. Yep. Which reminds me of a joke about this um, veteran from World War II, um, Queen Elizabeth, is yeah, 
says to him, I'll give you $1,000 for the distance between any two parts of your body. He said, ah, okay, from my, put his arms out, and he said, from my left finger to my right finger, and the queen said, um, okay, so that's 36 inches, $36,000. So said to the second one, what about you? And he said, ah, from my big toe to the top of my head. He said, oh, okay, that's about 72 inches, so $72,000. Said to the third one, said, what about you? And he said, from my left testicle to my right testicle. So, <laughs> and, oh, well, uh, well, you better give me a look. So, <laughs> drives, she said, you've only got your right testicle. She said, yeah, my left one's on a barbed wire fence over in Germany. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I could feel that's where that one was yeah, going. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's very good. Very good. So, normally, of course, this has been a long segment, but I have been doing it over the last few weeks, and I do have one myself. So, we've got a double header. Well, we got a double header. What is a group of jellyfish called? What is a group of jellyfish? So what, what is a group of jellyfish? A group of jellyfish. What is it called? A mole. A, mo- a mole? No. Is it a swarm? Okay. So, uh, Ben along. Uh, what's a wobble? Been, a wobble. What's, well, okay, hang on, stop. <laughs> what's, what's, <laughs> what's been happening over the last few weeks is we found out the uh, the old Forex bottle tops aren't as reliable as we, we, we had no. actually thought. I know, crazy. So the, the bottle top says that it's called a smack, a smack of jellyfish. But when I was, when I had a look at this, Apparently, that's actually wrong, and it's commonly, like, spread. The fact is spread that it's called a smack, but it's actually called a swarm. So, oh, Adit gets, gets a, a point for that one. Or, or a bloom of jellyfish. Um, I've heard bloom. But I don't know any jellyfish scientists. So, if you're a marine biologist and you've always called them a smack of jellyfish, Please let me know. Uh, <laughs> reach out. Tell us that we're wrong. Tell us that we're right. What is it really called? Or if you're Al- Anthony Albanese and happen to know a marine biologist, let us know. I think he might. I think he might have a couple on on speed dial. I'd imagine. Um, we'd love to hear from from you about this. So doesn't Angus give money to? <laughs> <laughs> So, oh, look, and on that bombshell, thanks for joining us for another episode of Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. If you have any feedback or suggestions for topics, please get in touch with us on the r slash Australian sub or email us at Australian subreddit at proton.me. Otherwise, join us next week for another episode of Australia Talks and remember, at r slash Australian, we are Australian. Thanks so much. See ya. Bye. See you, Nico. See you, Benelong. See you, Nico.